What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! Do you want to live forever? My name is Jared. I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Hey. So uh, just to let you guys know up top, (laughs) Austin is having computer problems again, so he is on the audio on his phone. So he's got a probably not fun computer upgrade ahead of him that's probably going to be pray for me so that i don't lose sorry brother my research i'm gonna cry oh i didn't even think about that well let's talk about something much more uplifting and fun let's talk about the 1997 film starship troopers directed by paul verhoeven starring casper van dien and denise richards now this was a patreon poll winner so to all the patrons who voted thank you very much this is also the first time i've ever seen this movie fuck yeah uh so as I can't always. believe that, actually, though. That is so surprising to me. Me too. You know what? I think I maybe saw like clips of it on TV. Because you know what's funny? The, the scene that everyone talks about is the shower scene. And when yeah. that scene came up, I was like, oh, I have seen parts of this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I fast forwarded to this with my <laughs> friends yeah, when probably, I was at a sleepover yeah, one time. Probably something like that. <laughs> anyway, let's get some first impressions. Let's go with Ryan first. Ryan. When was it like the first time you saw this movie? And what was it like revisiting it for this podcast? I'm in such a good mood because we're watching this movie. Okay. Yeah. This, was, this was your this pick, movie. by the this way. This is my pick for the poll. The people spoke and they agreed with me like the champs that they are. And man, I, I just love every time I watch it, it just solidifies why I like it more. I mean, Paul Verhoeven, top three director for me. You know, I, okay. like I'd probably say it's like Sam Raimi, Paul Verhoeven, and the Coen brothers, modern day directors. But, um, I digress. Uh, 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 so yeah, like, like I just love. I have a few written down things, but like, like I just love everything about that. It's like a high school space soap opera, like mixed with a hyper violent political satire. I know Jared, maybe you have uh, questions about whether it is a satire or not. Um, but yeah, like I love everything about this movie. Every, I love literally every scene of this movie. Like it just moves so it has such a fun vibe to it. It's like kitschy and campy, but like it takes itself seriously in a way. Anyway, I have a, I have a million superlatives. Can't wait to talk about it. Love the movie. 10 or 11 out of 10. All right. <laughs> and Austin, what do you think about this movie? I mean, the first time I saw it, I think I was in, when did this come out? 97. 90. 97. So I was in high school, like a freshman in high school, or maybe I was in eighth grade or something. Uh, so I I saw this not knowing anything about the satirical elements at the time whatsoever. So it was just like a movie about these dudes killing some bugs and it had the guy from Top Gun in it, Michael Ironside, right? So for mm-hmm. me, I was like, oh, that's Jester from Top Gun, which Top Gun is my favorite movie of all time. It's got really? like some fuck. Oh, Top Gun's my favorite. I don't movie think we've ever, ever discussed that. That's a kind that's of a, another that, another that's movie a, I've never it's a seen. Revelation. What? I know. Dude, I, know t- I know. Tom I know. Cruise I know. Is your I know. Favorite I know. Person on Earth. I know. I know. Okay, these are Sorry, two revelations. Go ahead, go, go ahead, Austin. <laughs> we digress. And and so when I first saw it, I, it was just kind of like this enjoyable, like Ryan said, kitschy kind of war film. And I remember my buddy was like, "Dude, we gotta watch Starship Troopers," and he was obsessed with this movie. And I didn't really understand the obsession. As a teenager, I was like, yeah, it's, it was fun and shit, but he fucking loved it. And then through the years, I've started to grow more of a, I guess, an analytical appreciation for what Verhoeven is doing as a provocateur and satirist. And I mean, I think it's great. Um, I've seen it a couple of times this year, actually. And 
this so this would have been the second time in the last like six months actually that I've seen the movie, and uh, I think it's um, I mean it's it's corny and cheesy, and I think some of the acting. I mean, Casper Van Dien is is not a good actor. Just I mean, I'm sorry. Neither I, is Denise I've Richards. Him... Dude, I thought Denise <laughs> Richards is awesome in this movie. She does a good. She has a great performance. <laughs> She's not a good actor. No way, man. We should all point out that you know this is like the entire cast of, of Melrose Place, Place, right? Yeah. Which is such a great. Nice, not stunt casting, but but amazing choice. I think you know, in a in a weird way. It this movie is not a movie to watch for acting. I don't. I, I would say. I mean, it's all over the top. Even NPH, who I love, he's over the top. Like everyone is playing a stereotype, but I think that fits. You know, I think that's kind oh, of. Yeah. I think that works to everything because it's like, it's like they're trying to make this into a typical military movie, and it's the trying that I'm emphasizing. Like everyone is trying. And and I think so at a surface level, you could be like, what the fuck am I watching? But I think once you peel back the layers, you're kind of like, oh, this is fucking fantastic. So I kind of think that it's superficially shallow, but uh, in its depth, I think it's really profound. All right. Well, this was the first time I saw this movie. I really didn't know anything about it other than it was in the future. There were guns and apparently there were boobs at some point. Yes. And God, this is a movie. I watched it on Friday. It's Monday right now, and you haven't stopped thinking about it. I haven't stopped thinking about it, and I also don't know what I think about it. <laughs> you didn't have a blast while you were watching it. Well, I definitely thought that the effects age really well. Yes, like the action is still awesome, mm. and I really liked it for that reason. That's the same for I think most Verhoeven movies. I feel yeah, like, aside from some stuff in RoboCop. Keep going. But you know what? This is also one of those movies that I asked pretty much. Like, we shot Earthling Cinema over the weekend. I asked everyone on set, have you seen Starship Troopers? What do you think about that movie? Have you seen Starship Troopers? And what do you think about that movie? And I'll say this. I think that the satire element, it's one of those movies that people say, like, oh, you don't get that it's a satire. How stupid of you. But I think that people who watch it and don't pick up on the satire are very justified. And I would even question if we are saying it's a satire. I want someone to point specifically to the satirical elements and how it functions because – Part of me thinks that this is literally just a straight-faced movie about promoting fascism, and there's like a meta-satire to it in which Paul Verhoeven's just saying, hey, here's an ideology that we demonize, and here's a kind of a fantasy futuristic scenario in which it's used to uh, basically win a war. Do you want to learn more? (laughs) I think you kind of nailed it right there in the head. And I think that this is a good, really, companion piece to our last week's talk on Fight Club and the satirical elements of that. Because it's very much – I think that David Fincher and Paul Verhoeven kind of come from the same camp of of they're they're putting shit out there for you and it's up to you to digest it and – and kind of, you know, and that makes for the best art, I feel like. You know, you're you're I agree. I agree 100 percent. Even if this movie is just a straight-faced – Basically, fascism is good movie. I still think that that's pretty metal, and like even yes. <laughs> even, even even and if it baits the audience into and trying to seduce them with that ideology, you know, we should have that because I was waiting this entire movie for their, you know, in all war movies, you know, most this is the first war movie I think I've ever seen that's not an anti-war movie. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Every war movie is an anti-war movie, and also every movie that is a war movie at some point has this point where the distinction between us versus them gets blurred if not as broken down you know in platoon we see scenes where uh sheen charlie sheen is having those moments of recognition that the Viet Cong are people too and that's like in every 
Vietnam movie. We don't see this here. We get a unilateral fuck the focus, fuck the bugs, <laughs> language of extermination all the way. And the only good bug is a dead bug. One and, of these days we're going to exterminate their entire race and fuck yeah, them. Exactly. And uh, yeah, so basically what a fucking interesting movie i know like like i mean <laughs> exactly yeah what the fuck? We'll, we'll i can't get it. believe we'll, this movie exists well because you know you know this is based off of a i mean it's loosely related to a book right well the book is called starship troopers and from the research that i did the book is very controversial because for these oh, same yeah, reasons it's a straight up jingoistic fascistic xenophobic propaganda right. Right, and the, the only good bug is a dead bug. And the question is, does Paul Verhoeven, how does he subvert that if he does it all? I think is well, the so question I, for this I, podcast. I, I heard one little anecdote uh, before before we get too deep into it that I will say that apparently in an interview, someone asked him, like someone came to him and was like, why do you want to make this book? This book's kind of controversial and fucked up. And he said, what I want to do is I want to show that fascism is only good for one thing, and that's killing bugs. Yes, Okay. okay. That, there we go. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, so, and, and, and that kind of leads it to your point: is that like, like that? It's just this absurd take on. They're not really. It's not a judgment call on fascism at the end, but you're supposed to take that it's a fucking. You know, you don't want to go there, or do you want to know more about it? I think that's all you can say is, do you want to know more? I don't think yeah. they can say that. Oh, I think that some people. You know, I I think I mentioned this. I don't know if it was in this podcast, but I grew up with a very close friend who was in a military family, and all he ever looked forward to was going to the military. He fucking loved this movie. And, of course, this was yeah. years ago, decades ago. Of course, we didn't talk about fascism or anything like that or how it's, like, overly m militaristic and authoritarian. But the discussions that valorized veterans and valorized the duty as a, quote, citizen in this really spoke to him. And I could see why. Anyway. I mean, well, if we're going to talk about films that valorize the military, I already mentioned probably one of the most successful uh, pieces of propaganda ever produced by a, a Hollywood studio, and it's Top Gun. Because Top Gun was literally made in conjunction with the United States military, and apparently the amount of people that signed up for military service after Top Gun like, was measurably uh, increased. That's so, a good point. And, you know, Tony Scott's a commercial. He came out of making commercials anyway, and everything he makes is so fucking sexy. So Top Gun is basically just like a – it's not a do you want more. It's like sign up today. And this film right. kind of has that too, but I yeah. do think there's a cutting well, edge well, to it. We'll I mean, get into that after the review. Yeah. A big difference though is that you know they're never in combat in Top Gun. They're just like doing dogfighting you know, shows. Yeah, they are. Are they? End of the movie, brother. All right. Well, hey, Sorry. no spoilers for me. I haven't seen. It's been Top a while Gun, since guys. I saw it. Sorry. All right. I'd say American Sniper okay. is a good. Get through uh, this recap, and then Jared and I are gonna. Oh, and then I have to get shamed again. Shit. All right. All right, guys. Let's go into a recap. <laughs> In a futuristic, militaristic regime, Johnny Rico, his girlfriend Carmen, and his friends Carl and Dizzy decide to enter the federal service after graduating high school to aid in the ongoing war against the Arachnids. Johnny and Dizzy join up with the infantry, Carl, military intelligence, while Carmen goes to flight school with Rico's rival, Xander. Eventually, Rico makes squad leader, while Carmen decides to pursue a career as a ship commander and breaks up with Johnny. A fatal mistake in training leads to Johnny almost quitting the infantry, but when the bugs attack Earth and kill millions, Rico and the military are catapulted into all-out war. The assault is a catastrophe, with hundreds of thousands of soldiers killed. The humans underestimated the bugs, which makes them think there may be a race of brain bugs pulling the strings. Carmen witnesses the false report that Rico has died in action. 
Meanwhile, Rico heals from his wounds and joins his high school teacher's battalion, the Roughnecks. After a successful counterattack, Rico gets promoted and hooks up with Dizzy. On their next mission, they discover that a bug can suck your brains out of your head. But before they can get saved by Carmen, Dizzy and his high school teacher die in the fight. Now a high-ranking official, Carl gives Rico the job of lieutenant and sends him back to the alien planet to acquire the Brain Bug, a bug with intelligence. When a devastating attack destroys their airship, Carmen and Xander board an escape vessel and land in the Bug City, where a Brain Bug sucks out Xander's brains. Rico saves Carmen in the nick of time, and the military captures the Brain Bug to study it. Knowing that they'll be able to discern how the bugs think and thus how to beat them, the military moves forward in their battle with firm confidence. End of movie. All right, guys. So I want to start with a quote from the screen, the screenwriter, Edward. I'm going to screw this up. Edward Neumeyer. He said, what I really liked about the idea of this movie was that it allowed me to write about fascism. I had a feeling that today's film audiences would really appreciate Heinlein's ideas. Heinlein is the guy who wrote the initial book. Because the message of the original book was pretty straightforward. Democracy is failing, and we need some strict controls on our culture. Neumeier argues that fascism is in our biology and can easily rear its attractive head at times of crisis. He warns us that fascism is around every corner, so watch out. So, with that in mind, I want to ask, I think the seminal question of this podcast and of the movie is, is this a satire and to what extent it is? We see a planet or a society that seems to be entirely globalized. I, one of the most interesting things about it is that Rico lives in Buenos Aires, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence of Argentinian culture anywhere. Yeah, except they have like Spanish last names. Oh, right. Yeah, Rico and stuff like that. Yeah, and all their names, their like last names are like Rodriguez and shit. So, oh, okay. Uh, and then, so I think that some of these quotes from the movie can best explain what this fascistic regime is like. So from the opening scene with the teacher, he says, This year we explored the failure of democracy, how the social scientists brought our world to the brink of chaos. We talked about the veterans, how they took control, and imposed stability that lasted for generations since. And then uh, one of the students says, uh, My mother always said violence never solves anything. And the teacher says, Really? I wonder what the city fathers of Hiroshima would say about that. They probably wouldn't say anything because Hiroshima, because Hiroshima was destroyed. Naked force has resolved more issues throughout history than any other factor. The contrary opinion that violence never solves anything is wishful thinking at its worst. People who forget that always pay. Violence is the supreme authority. Yeah. Is something that is said at some point, too. So. Yeah. So I want to talk about if this is a satire, if we are supposed to walk away with this film saying that, oh, it's over the top and that they're not actually promoting fascism or a, a a regime like this since they do ultimately win at the end and all of our characters that we spent all this time uh, identifying with do love the regime more than ever at the end and it's yeah. th everything. Um, and I think there's a, a couple – you can make a very good argument and that's actually the argument I want to make today that this movie is pretty much absent of any overt satirical elements other than the fact that an American filmmaker is making this film. No, he's not. He's Danish. He's, oh, he's yeah. Danish. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Well, either way, a non-fascist. Or, you know, like this film feels to me like what it would look like if we brought Kim Jong... Uh, assuming, assuming Kim Jong-il was still alive, if we brought 
Kim Jong-il to the States and said, hey, make a space war movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I mean, I get what you're saying. It's blurry. and and um, But I kind of think it does a little bit of both. I mean, it obviously is so over the top. And I think Why, to, though? For, okay. for effect. For, Why? For how is it, how is it over the top? Okay. What do you mean how it's, how it's over the top? I mean, people make these like decisions like like they just are totally cool with, oh, you know, I'll accept 10 lashes in the county square instead of letting you do this. Like it's like so like like people – no human would say that like in that, that flippant way. I don't really. know. I, I think that – I mean it's said for a comedy are, effect. You is know? it? It's, yes. Okay. Well, it's supposed look, to be like, like, oh, look at these people that have, have been born and raised in this – fascistic, you know, uh, culture and government, that's all they've known, obviously, and they've totally bought into it, you know, and the reason they have is because there's fucking bugs, uh, you know, so so the whole thing that you just said, the quote about the, the writer saying, um, you know, that, that, that he wanted to just express that fascism's in our DNA, I think that that shines through, that, 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 that quote, you know, because it's basically saying like, yeah, human beings when faced with, you know, these threats, you know, will organize like this and here's just an example of, you know, mixed with this high school soap opera kind of shit that, you know, you can relate to. Like, here's just an example of, of, of that coming to its ultimate extreme and fruition. And do you want to <laughs> know more about it? <laughs> exactly. So I don't know. But, I, I get okay. what you're saying, that it's messy. Here's the thing. Let's take a modest proposal as an example of a satire. So the reason why a modest proposal, this is a piece of a piece that was it was an essay written by Jonathan Swift. It's considered like the prototypical satire in which he inhabits the form of an essay, of a political essay, but fills it with subversive content. He basically says that the way that we should fix poverty is just to eat children, you know? And of course it's ridiculous. So the way that that works as a satire is that it's in the form and language of a political essay, but the content is beyond obscene. And I want to break down a couple of elements in this film to just basically let's talk about how we think it is or is not subversive. Well, and I would just to say that, I mean, I would say that this is the form of a Melrose Place episode in the fucking fascistic government of a, you know, under attack by aliens. Okay. That's insane. That's probably the best argument. That was actually the third thing I have down. But the first one I want to talk about is the bug aliens, because this is kind of the one of the weirdest things. Okay. So if you want to make the point that it's showing us a horrible society that uses language of extermination and genocide to defeat its enemies, very reminiscent of Nazi language, you know, the only good bug is a dead one. The thing is, these are bugs. You know, we yeah. use this language when dealing with bugs all the time. You kill cockroaches, flies, etc. Now, I understand that on the one hand, this is literalizing how many militaristic regimes will dehumanize their enemies by calling them insects, rodents, and vermin. But this is literally bugs. You can't dehumanize bugs. So I, f I feel like the form – nothing breaks here. If, you can debugganize them. Whether you're a military fascistic regime or you're a democratic regime, if there are these non-human alien bug entities or even alien bug entities, cockroaches in your house – you exterminate them. So I'm just saying that. So it, you're saying that, that there's no metaphor, right? You know, not that there's no metaphor. I just don't think that. Once again, when you read a modest proposal, you're like, oh, I see how there's a discrepancy between the form of an essay and the content of something obscene happened. I just don't think there's a discrepancy here. Well, right. It's just straight faced. Yes. If aliens came and were attacking us right now, you know, and they were, it's like it's kill or be killed, right? I mean, it's like they're coming to exterminate us. Or what uh, are you going to do? <laughs> what are we going to do? That's, well, so the, that's the, the situation the thing, these people though. are There's in. A, the, 
the presumption here is that they attacked and and we're not ever actually given any evidence to the contrary that 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 they didn't necessarily instigate something it's just simply stated that they sent a fucking asteroid or comet now are we to suppose that these aliens these bugs have the technology to be able to guide an asteroid or whatever it was a comet or a meteor that's huge and send it to earth or are we meant to think that ah that's just the way that they've manipulated an astronomical event in order to engage in a militaristic activity so that they could bind their community based around a common foe so you're saying there's a conspiracy well i fuck yeah man you're, there's you're the no alex jones of starship all, troopers well, first of all wait go ahead i was gonna say False flag? I, I do think that it's important that we get very little information as to how the conflict started. Now, at one point, there's a new cast, a newscaster who says, however, Mormon extremists disregarded federal warnings and established Fort Joe Smith deep inside the erected quarantine zone. Too late, they realized that Dantana had already been chosen by other colonists, arachnids. And then Johnny Rico, our hero, comes in and says, fuck that, I'm from Buenos Aires. You know, our whole society was just turned into shit, and the only good bug is a dead bug. And... That's the only thing we hear of it. We never hear if this is true. We never hear if that perhaps the humans right. did cause this. And I think the important thing there, but once again, this is, I do feel like this is me projecting here. I do too. I, because but, I, but that, I feel like that's my point. You have to project in order for this to be a satire. Yeah, I, because I, I definitely, when I watched it the first time and this time, I always take it very literally. They yes. are under a attack by giant bugs that are there to exterminate them. And right, and I, the strength of their ideology is what allows them, in the context of the movie, yes. to succeed. Right. That is what makes it subversive, not because, but that's the thing. Whenever I talk about this movie, people are like, oh, Starship Troopers is so obviously a satire because it's so over the top. Well, but when I people don't say satire, that... are they just assuming that word means that it has to deal with a satire of, like, what are the, of our society? I mean, like, I, I mean, to me, can it be I, a satire I think, I think, of an I, ideology, you know? Well, I think that at least in conversational parlance, when I was just asking random people during the shoot, I think they basically just meant, you're not supposed to take it seriously or it's deliberately silly. In the same way that American Psycho is deliberately over the top. I even think that RoboCop is actually much better in establishing this sense of irony early on, better than this movie. But I'm not saying that that's bad, that RoboCop is better than this movie. I'm just saying that perhaps deliberately the irony is a lot less obtuse and a lot less obvious in this movie. I mean, in, in the first movie. five minutes, there's, like, like soldiers, like, like showing a, a, an elementary school class a giant gun, and they're all giving handing out bullets like trickered candy. You know, I think that that's kind of very... It's in one of those and commercials. It's a, and yeah. it's a shot-for-shot -shot remake of Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph, Triumph of, of the Will. Will. Right. But but you wouldn't know that unless you were a film student or a, or a that, World War II historian. But that's the point. Right, but, I mean, so much satire requires... A familiarity with the form that's being deconstructed, right? Like, and and this is one of the things that like how, there are films that filmmakers make for film for filmmakers, you know, mm -hmm. or at least they put in little Easter eggs that only filmmakers like. If you don't know anything about a fucking Marvel film and you go in, you're not going to enjoy it as much as somebody who's balls deep in the history of comic books, right? Because they're going to be like, oh my god, this figure. Like, I just watched Daredevil and I had no idea the the new season on Netflix, and I had no idea that this guy was Bullseye, 
Like, I don't know who the fuck Bullseye is because mm-hmm. I never read the comics. I, I don't know anything about that. But this new bad guy was Bullseye. And then at the end, he's getting like his spine fixed because that's what happens in the comic books. And he's getting fixed by this doctor who then becomes another bad guy. I didn't know any of that shit until I watched a video essay that explained all of that to me. So when I watched it, I just enjoyed it at one level. Whereas a comic book lover is going to enjoy it at another level. That's what you get with satirical films that are deconstructing a particular niche form. And so I can understand why you're saying maybe it's not explicit for everyone, all the satirical elements. But I think there are enough satirical elements that when you kind of bring them all together and when you start to dig a little bit deeper, then it becomes overwhelming. Not just the -the over-the-top acting, the set designs that are clearly supposed to be a little bit kitschy. Um, the fact that you have a bunch of white people in Buenos Aires with last names like, like uh, Ibanez and fucking Rico and Flores and shit like that. I mean, and that you have this clear militaristic society that makes a clear distinction between citizens and military personnel. I mean, I think when you start to add all of this stuff up together, then the satirical elements become much clearer. But do you at least agree that if this movie was brought up in, let's say, an alternate history, or let's just say like... uh, in North Korea, they got an they got a copy of this film. Do you not think that it could be, with a straight face, taught as an endorsement of fascistic militaristic ideologies? Well, yeah, but I, I but to me that doesn't that doesn't no maybe no. Yeah, but to me that would, doesn't. No, I think that I think that someone could watch it and they wouldn't be like, oh, this is a satire for sure. But mm-hmm. an that, idiot that, that would. doesn't mean that it's not satire. No, that man, yes, that that's too much. That's, no, that's, you're going too far there. <laughs> no, I mean it is so deliberate. We need to. I wish we had a screen. We could. I mean these these those scenes of the of the propaganda videos are comedy. They no, are straight but, but, but just like what Austin skits. said, they're <laughs> right. literally shot for shot from a Nazi propaganda video, exactly. which was that not makes them more which comedy. was not comedy. Right, but that, but the fact that they're making a not, uh, uh, they're making a shot-for-shot remake of a Nazi propaganda video about fucking giant space alien bugs that makes it a fucking comedy. Uh, kind of, I mean, yeah, and, don't the Nazi, think, the, and don't you think there's there's something valuable about this film that at the end it says, "Do you want to join up?" and that it's constantly kind of trying to recruit you to a militaristic ideology, and he's trying to show absurdity. So I think yes. that we have to we, we think of satire as being like smart and sharp. What if this satire is absurd? And it's absurd because it's trying to make you be like, oh, man, I totally want to do that. And then at the end, Paul Verhoeven's like, gotcha, motherfucker. And then you're like, oh, shit, I'm an idiot because I got caught up in wanting to, like, bang Every hot Paul- chicks and, like, and be a part of, like, this bro culture and go, like, kill bugs because that seems cool. Oh, man, maybe, I'm a, maybe I got duped. You know, yes. so it's like an absurdist duping. Yes, it's a troll. It's a it's troll like, movie. It's uh, like when people read The Onion man. and they think it's a real fucking article. You know, and 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 what you just said, um, like every Paul Verhoeven movie has this heightened sense of reality to it. Showgirls, you know, it's like not that's not how showgirls act. You know, like like <laughs> this is not how fucking people would act in the military. But it's like a very like you said, you know, like like he's taking reality to the uh, to, to Channel Eleven. Uh, and then somebody said here on um on the thing, fuck, I just had it up, but uh, that I thought was important. I a Samov on the live stream said, uh, Jared, research Verhoeven's life. He lived through a Nazi occupation. I kind of had forgotten about that. Oh, okay. Uh, so right. it deliberately is referencing Triumph of the, Bill, the Will and the propaganda reels. So I definitely think, I mean, think about that, dude. He lived through a Nazi occupation. He made this movie. I think he's totally trying to make, you know. I, it's a, it's, I, I get it's it. Like, I, I read quotes from him. I, I'm just trying to study this, not, not unlike Fight Club. I'm trying to look at, like, how is this movie popularly consumed? And despite what the creators wanted to do i'm just trying to look like how what does the text reflect mm-hmm. and i'm saying right. and, and i don't want 
you guys to think that I'm like, oh, I don't think this movie is a satire. I'm just challenged. I think that what makes this movie interesting is the fact that it's not so clear cut. It's not as clear as something like American Psycho in which you walk away and saying, oh, obviously the over the topness is meant to agreed meant to criticize, you know, yuppies in the 80s like Patrick Bateman. And that's this what makes mo- it awesome. I 100 percent agree. But. If it was too obvious, it wouldn't be as awesome, and that's what—that's why I'm bringing this up. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Fight Club isn't very obvious for everybody either. I mean, not to go super dark, but you know, the this Florida shooter that just shot up the yoga studio this past week talks about Fight Club in these videos that he uploaded online, oh, shit. and he does it, and he does it in a way where he's not like saying, "Yeah, Fight Club is this indictment of capitalist society and consumer culture, blah blah blah." No, he talked about the idea where he says. Uh, he quotes the, you know, like, how do you know yourself if you've never been in a fight sort of thing? And I, this is one of the, the the issues that people debate around films like Starship Troopers and Fight Club. They want to know, is there something inherently deficient if you're not super clear that, hey, right. don't think this way? And and, and that's just a that's just a tension that artists and culture are, are always going to be working through. And I just want to be clear. I would never suggest that even if a film like Fight Club or Starship Troopers wasn't, quote, clear enough. I don't think there is a clear enough. I think you should be able to make whatever you want. I don't I I I don't exist in a world where I think that piece of art ought not to exist. I don't believe that. Oh, I sure. just We're but I but, you that. no, but I do believe that these things should be looked at critically. Mm-hmm. All right. right. So. I, I read this article called The Intergalactic Final Solution, Nazism and Genocide in Paul Verhoeven's <laughs> Starship Troopers by Brian E. Krim, and it's a great article. And so uh, I'm going to quote a couple things that he says here, but here's one thing that he mentioned. Uh, he's actually quoting a Time magazine, and he says, Verhoeven told Time magazine that he lamented the loss of that wonderful enemy everyone can fight. Science fiction opens up new horizons, Verhoeven explains, since faceless aliens like arachnids stand in nicely for communists and Nazis. They're bad. They're evil, and they're not even human. So it's almost like this is made in 1997 where there weren't very many clear enemies anymore. You know, and it's kind of interesting how this is. What do you mean by that? Like there's no more communists. There's no more Red Scare. There's no more Cold War. There's no more Ivan Drago in Rocky IV where like, oh, the communists are the bad guys. There's no, uh, yeah, that, that was gone. Or we didn't have Nazis for like the 40s movies where it was like, okay, here is this mustache twirling objective evil. And he says, now with sci-fi, we can create these horrible arachnid space alien monsters that can be that new stand-in for evil. All right. So let's talk about the cast. This is what you were mentioning earlier is the fact that we're watching Melrose Place Goes to War. Isn't that in itself (laughs) just ridiculous? Exactly. Uh my only thing, and maybe it's just because I've been too interested in how the film industry operates. To me, I was like, no, these are the – first of all, I imagine this movie was very expensive to make. And I'm thinking to myself, these are the kind of stars that allow this kind of movie to get made. And so when I was thinking like, oh, my God, Casper Van Dien is so bad. Denise Richards is so bad. I wasn't really thinking that this was deliberate, like, subversive casting. It was which... like 21 years later when they're out of the consciousness. I mean, when, when when that movie came out, that was like, that was on people's minds. Like, oh, let's go see the, the Melrose Place bug movie. Wait, when when did Melrose Place get off the air? Early 90s, I want to Early say. 90s? Mid-90s, maybe. I feel like Denise Richards was still a star in 97. Am I wrong? No, she was. That's what I'm saying. Oh. And you're you're looking at it like, like I, I mean. It's not like they hired an aging, like, Stallone or something 
to be in a war movie to make some sort of ironic right, point. Right, but these were TV stars. You know, right. these were just like, like, like they could have gotten A-list celebrities for this big budget. I mean, this movie costs a fair amount of money, I think. Right. And uh, uh, so, yeah, this was totally like he went out of his way to do that and for, for, I, the, for effect. It just, I don't know. It makes sense to me to, to say that. So this is uh, words from Krim. He said, the choice of attractive but forgettable actors floating through a Nazi wonderland <laughs> is at the heart of Verhoeven's satiric vision. And I totally get it. That totally makes sense to me. I'll just say at the beginning that a lot of times when I watch movies that get and they have like crappy casts, I'm just like, oh, well, of course, that's the only way the movie would get made. And so I'm not thinking, huh. oh, yes, it's ridiculous to see Doogie Hauser walking around in SS gear saying he had to make he had to make a decision to have thousands of people die or Denise Richards as like an A plus Hermione Granger pilot. Well, it, or, it makes me sad that you guys don't uh, uh, that you think that they're bad performances. Like when when are they bad? When do they go? You know, because to me, they're just like they're like, like I said, they're heightened reality. They're over the top. But to, to me, they're never like. Like cringy, you know. Well, to me, it's that maybe Neil Patrick Harris a little bit maintain... when he's psychic, psychicking that alien. Denise Richards and Doogie Howser or Neil Patrick Harris, they maintain the same innocence and naivete of the Melrose Place aesthetic throughout the whole exactly. movie, it's even awesome. though they're supposed to be hardened warrior badasses. That's the point right? of the movie, though. That's what I like about the movie. Yay! And you're saying that that, that 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 choice, that acting performance choice? You probably also choice? really love Denise Richards playing a doctor in James Bond, don't you? Uh, I, which one was that? She, see, see, I like her in this scenario. I think Paul Verhoeven can take what D Denise Richards is as an actress and then use it to effect in his weird-ass way. It's hard. She's not as good in other things. I don't even really like, like, wild things or anything. You know? All I'm saying I mean, is that when I was watching it, I wasn't like, oh, I see what he's Paul Verhoeven's doing here. I was seeing, like... Wow, yeah, man, this is, I guess, what you had, this is the compromises you had to make to make a movie in 1997 See, I'm, that's the, this I'm expensive. the first one. I'm the first, like, when I said before that I love every scene, I'm, like, loving every scene going, wow, I like what, I get what Paul Verhoeven is doing here, you know? Like, in terms of the but aesthetics also, of the movie. also know that I knew nothing going into this. I nothing. know, that's what's so, that, that's honestly really uh, interesting to me, that you knew nothing going in. So that's, yeah. I, I had no idea it was a satire. All I knew was that it took place in the future with guns and aliens. Yeah. So you saw it as just bad acting. I saw it as bad acting. And yeah, if you're making $200 million, it better have Denise Richards in it or however okay. much the movie costs. That's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I mean, I guess, yeah. But again, this, this, but this is kind of what we were saying earlier, right? That this is kind of the point is that that sometimes satire can be enjoyed at different levels. Like I don't want to throw anybody under the bus too much, but I have people close to me that there's this Christian satirical website called the Babylon Bee. Do you guys know what that is? I know what it is. I know what you're talking about. So it's it's literally a satirical website. It's the Christian version of the Onion, right? Right. But I know uh, some people close to me that when I was back in California, they showed me an article that tried to show like how ridiculous, uh, you know, left wing politics was or something along those lines. And they showed me an article from Babylon B and I had to tell them, I said, you guys know that this is a satirical website, right? And they were like shocked. And the look on their face was like, wait, really? Like, because I have been reading this every day for the last like eight months and taking my <laughs> news from this. And, wow, they, how, <laughs> and, and as, as, as upsetting as that is, <laughs> 
it's also understandable if you're a little bit older and you don't understand certain forms of media. You don't understand new media. You don't understand social media to the same degree as somebody who's 20 years old who's just trained to look for this sort of thing. I think it's the same thing with this film is that there are different layers and different persuasions that are going to interpret it different layer or at different levels depending on where you're at in your life. At the same and if you don't know anything going in and if you don't if you don't know that the point is to do something or you don't you're not familiar with Paul Verhoeven and basically everything he does is provocative and satirical to some extent then if you're not looking for that then maybe you're not you're not going to pick up on it and that's okay. And I am I not mean, a Paul Verhoeven you know? expert. I think I've only seen RoboCop 1. Like you, like you've never seen Showgirls? Wait, oh, wait, no, no, no. L? We got I, some I, work I, to do. Wait, dude. I have not seen Showgirls, but I have seen Total seen Recall. Black Book? Okay. Black Book? I have not seen Black Book. I know that's like 2013, relatively new. Relatively new. Yeah, so I got some yeah. homework to do. Uh, but to your point, Austin, I just want to say, like, yeah, that sucks for your buddies who got duped. But the last thing in the world that I want is for Facebook I think they might have already done this and then stopped doing it to start having like fucking satire tags. Oh yeah, I mean, you too. know, fuck that would that. yeah, fuck that. If I was watching Starship Troopers and all of a sudden it said at the beginning this film is meant to be taken as satire, I would burn the screen down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is interesting though. There are a few movies I don't necessarily like, but yeah, it, like that it is maybe good to know a little bit going in, you know. Like I I, I would say Mother is kind of like that like if if, you know, if people go in thinking that that's like a regular movie when it's and then they get with yeah, that. Yeah, but Honestly, you know it's I'm glad I didn't know anything. I went through this week. I mean, because I guess you're right. Because of the my initial viewing being like, wait, what? Like I didn't get it at all, and then I had to kind of recontextualize things. And then, like once I started kind of in, in, ingraining myself into the conversation around this movie, I was like, okay, I'm starting to see it now. But once again, because this movie is relatively straight faced, I think that me consuming it initially like that was a gift. Oh yeah, and You're I think it's right. more powerful as a piece of satire when it does that. Like I made made the comment earlier, it's almost like Verhoeven is like, ah, I duped you. And I yeah. think that if you can sit there and be like, man, I want to sign up. That looks awesome. I want to have like a bro community and hot chicks and everyone's good looking. You got badass uniforms and big guns and we're fucking people up. Fuck yeah, bravado, machismo. There's something appealing about that. And if you if you buy into that and then at the end, then you find out later that it's like, aha, but you just bought into a fascistic ideology. See how easy it is. Then I think that really causes you to kind of question yourself so that we don't look at, uh, you know, German citizens in the 30s and 40s and be like, oh, they're just scum. How did they not know any better? Well, if everything is shiny and beautiful and you're trying to create this new race and you're trying to, like, build up national pride and you're also, like, binding people together through some sort of strength by creating an external foe and the trains are running on time or whatever it is that you're doing and you're getting yourself out of a depression and, yes, and it's all because of this military might and it's all because of this binding together based on this common foe, then it kind of gives you a little bit more of a sensitivity to that that shows you how weak and frail – you can potentially be as a human. Not that it makes it be like, oh man, that's cool of them. Good, yeah, I understand them. They're good people. No, no, it's not about making a value judgment like that, but it's much more of a fucking be on guard and look at how easy it is for something like this to happen or look at how seductive this Absolutely. pole can be. In order to defeat an you know? ideology, we must first understand how it tempts us. Right. And I mean, and that's what they're that, that's what they're doing here is is this is one of the root we talked a little bit about uh, a little bit about fascism last week, but one of the sort of root grounding logics of fascism is is this idea of uh, of binding people together by covering over the truth of the crisis. So let's just 
and this is just the way I, th I think there's an ambiguity about what actually caused the uh, asteroid or meteor or whatever the fuck it is to destroy Buenos Aires. Um, but let's just suppose that it was just a natural disaster. Well, that's a perfect opportunity for a powerful, centralized, totalitarian regime to be like, well, let's blame it on these people so that we can destroy them, so that we can mine their resources, or so that we can just bind our people together. Whether it's conscious or not, that's like, ah, let's make this up, or whether it's you're just caught up in your habitual flow of your own self-deception, and you're like, they must have done it because they're always out for us. Those fucking bugs, they're disgusting, and they're vermin or whatever it is, and then you just blame them because it's like, that's what they do because bugs just, Arr! I mean, whatever the, the motivation is, is, the point is, is that if you can do that, um, then you can actually bind people together. And that's one of the central tenets of like fascistic regimes is being able to do that. That's what Hitler did with the Jews, like we already talked about, right? I mean, that's what what you're seeing now with like Strasserism on the rise and, and various other far-right uh, neo-Nazi movements that are emerging all over Europe and Hungary and um, even in places like Denmark and the Netherlands, you know, Paul Verhoeven's from uh, from the Netherlands. So you're you're seeing this rise. Uh, you see it with Brexit in the UK that it was used as a sort of like jingoistic, xenophobic. We need to have our own national identity back, bring back the British Empire. So there are these narratives that are taught so that you can bind your people together, and it's usually based on kind of creating an external foe. Yeah. So. Uh Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Ryan. Well, I, I was just going to say to that, like, to, to me, another kind of interesting part re regarding, like, just the muddiness of this satirical stuff, like, uh, uh, is that he he does show like good things about a society, yeah. you know, like, like in terms of you know all all the people, all the cultures are just on board. This is a on, human endeavor, right? We, you know, I don't, you know, they're all right. like like to me this scene in the shower where they're all just hanging out, like having a big co-ed naked shower together. That's like an inspiring scene where they're all just. I'm like some of the like, most badass warrior. This is like you know like, why, why can't that happen? Why can't we do that? Even though it'd be weird, you know, uh, uh, like but you know you're envisioning this future in a hundred years where people don't. Get Give a shit about that. Some you know? of the most badass warriors are women in this. One. Exactly, you know, yeah. and and yeah. So the, it does make you kind of go. It, it, it like you said at the very beginning, it's showing the attractive nature of of how you you know fa fascism. You know, it's easy to see how people could could go that route when they're under extreme stress and threats yeah. and danger. Yeah. You know? Well, you remember post nine eleven, how everyone was like, "We're all Americans," you know, like everyone was like. New York strong, New York yeah. fire department. We love you. We're all Americans. It was almost yeah, like, it was great. I don't know how long it lasted. It, it was like everyone was in it together sort of thing. And it's because it, it's one of the easiest ways to like bind a community together is by having a clearly defined external foe or enemy or some sort of traumatic event that brings people together. I mean, obviously there's a different experience between having an external enemy and then experiencing a shared trauma. But it was used to galvanize people. Like I remember, like again, the the amount of people that signed up for the military after 9/11 to go and fucking destroy these people who were attacking our peaceful nation was was you know substantially measurable. Like it, it was a big increase. I remember my friends and I talked about that. You know these yuppie Orange County boys that had never thought about military service are like, yeah, they're fuck, they're gonna go and go fight in, in this war now to go like make sure they protect our freedoms and shit like that. So it's really easy to see how this mechanism works in various different contexts. Yeah, so more to what Austin was talking about of how seducing fascism can be, uh, the article that I mentioned earlier by Brian Krim, he starts the article with an interesting quote from a Canadian scholar named Michael 
Ignatieff. I might have fucked that up. He says, what could be more like paradise on Earth than to live in a community without enemies, to create a world with no more need for borders, a world safe from the deadly contaminations and temptations of the other tribe? What could be more beautiful than to live in a community with people who resemble each other in every particular? What could be more seductive than to kill in order to put an end to all killing? This utopia is so alluring that it's a wonder the human race has been able to survive at all. And I think mm. I think it was a very interesting quote to start that article with. Um, also, more to what Austin was saying about the Riefenstahl thing, about how the slick commercials that glorify the military are di- directly linked to Riefenstahl's most famous shots. He says, Verhoeven calls this wink-wink Riefenstahl. When asked <laughs> if he intended to link the Federation to the Third Reich, Verhoeven responded... In a way, but it's not saying that Starship Troopers society is wrong because of that resemblance. It's not making a judgment. These references say, here it is, the futuristic society that works on this level well, and it fights giant insects very well. Look and decide. The judgment is yours. Jesus Christ, Jerry, you buried the lead on that one. We could have used that quote a lot earlier in this conversation. Well, what, uh, you can't blow. Yeah, exactly. Num- Paul number Verhoeven. one rule of writing, don't blow your load. <laughs> Paul Verhoeven nailed it. That's kind of what we've been saying, right? Yeah. There was another uh, really interesting thing in this article. This is a great article, by the way, if you guys uh, – it was originally in uh, a journal called Shofar, summer 2010. Uh, but another interesting thing he mentions is a German literature tradition called Bildungsroman, which – are you familiar with this, Austin? Yeah, I don't know why I am. Keep talking about it because that word. So Johnny Rico's coming of age story mirrors that of the typical protagonist in the flood of German First World War memoirs and and fiction called Bildungsroman. These novels emphasize the transformative experience of war and the inherent right of veterans to lead. Ernst Mm. Younger, a prolific author lionized by the Nazis, wrote important memoirs and novels about his own coming of age during the First World War. Younger's personal odyssey mirrors Johnny Rico's journey from a clueless teenager to the new man the fascist movement revered. Uh, And then the the screenwriter, Edward Neumeyer, even cites Younger's famous war memoir, Storm of Steel, as an inspiration for the screenplay. So it's really interesting how all of this kind of blacklisted literature is used as inspiration for this for this movie uh, i had never heard mm. of that it's also just cool because i read this article and i heard about learned about all these th- i mean obviously we're not going to learn about that kind of stuff in school uh right. but i found that to be pretty darn interesting no i mean i think it's it's an interesting film no matter what we think about it, it it's trying to do something and 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 i think and that's why i think that it could be just a really like brilliant piece of satire because it isn't so heavy handed. Right. Because when it, when it is heavy handed, you feel a little cheated at the end. I think sometimes you're kind of like, Oh, okay. But it's almost, it's more manipulative in in a good way because all art is essentially manipulative anyway. I mean, even if you're just sitting there watching a fucking, I mean, all commercials are manipulative and this film is made as a propaganda commercial, right. To, to be like, look how cool and sleek and shiny and sexy and fun being a part of this militaristic society is. But in general, all art is. It's manipulating your feeling, your emotion. It's trying to stimulate thought. And in a way, the author is or the artist kind of has you uh, in his or her clutches a little bit, right? And that's kind of the point. And and what this film does is it 
is it kind of like forces us to come along with Verhoeven and whatever it is that he's created. And then if you do take the time to do a little studying or you talk with friends, which is what all art is supposed to elicit, then you're going to be like, oh, fuck. Okay, well, maybe I missed something or maybe there's something more to it. And then you watch it again. And, you know, like, I don't know. I think there's something lovely about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an amazing movie. So I'll just end it with a final quote from Paul Verhoeven. He said, I tried to seduce the audience to join in the Trooper Society, but then ask, what are you really joining up for? God mm. damn. Thank you, Paul Verhoeven, for existing. Thank you, Mr. For Verhoeven. making this movie. No, for making quick, every though, movie you make. Do you think there's something deficient if that last part never is reached? No. Like, do you think... So, what, what do you mean do you the last part? Like, you mean like a responsibility you mean, of the artist? Zero. To, you know? to, to, uh, you're asking, is the artist responsible to make sure that people answer no to that question? Especially if they're trying to show something that is despicable. Like, do you think that if a bunch of dudes watching Starship Troopers sign up to join jingoistic uh, militaristic endeavors? Because of this, that, that that's somehow the responsibility of the artist because he wasn't clear enough by saying, oh, hey, whoa, hold on a second. That's not what I was saying. No, I, was I don't. I don't. Of this I, I mean, I, I, I think I, like Joseph Grobels or somebody who's literally making movies to try and make you become a Nazi. Yeah, that guy's responsible for what happens, you know, because he's trying to be, make people murderers, you know. But like someone like Paul Verhoeven. If he's trying to make a, sat a satire, but like isn't you know holding your hand through it, then and then someone takes it, somebody takes it the wrong way. That's I don't think that's on him. I don't. Yeah, I I don't. I, okay. Because of his intention. I also. I mean, I tend to be pretty radical about this. I mean, it's just kind of like as a death law, of, like, death of the like, author, just or just like no, society. Like art's job is not to build a better society. It's not. It's on. It's its own thing. Like it, as soon as it becomes that, yeah. As soon as it becomes that, it's just propaganda films. It's just public service announcements. We don't need that. Art can be subversive in a way that this one is. And as far as the Goebbels thing, I don't really know where the line is. I think there is a line, obviously. Like, we can't have propaganda films that are as crazy as the Goebbels thing. But well, I, I mean, don't really I mean, you're know. You're saying, what's the line? It's like, what are we going to do, even if I think it's wrong? I mean, all I'm saying is that my personal judgment is that, yeah, that guy has responsibility for, you know, what happens because of his movies. I don't know. I mean, it's not an easy answer. But anyway, let's go into the mailbag slash voicemails. I can't I keep forgetting the number for the voicemail. I believe it's. I, I, I have it, right? Oh, you do you? What is it? No, I mean, I have. The... Yeah, you have the voicemails. I'm just trying to want to remind the fans that they can send us voicemails uh -huh. with comments, questions, insights. Oh, here we go. I at the it. number, which is. The number is 1-213-534-534. 8807. 8807. If somebody out there on the internet could look at those numbers and come up with a, like... We like need to come up with a jingle. No, I'm saying come up with a cool, like, like new, uh, 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 what do you call it? When you find the letters for all the numbers, if you can find a cool one for those numbers, we could, you know, say it, and then we can just say those cool, that cool word. Does it make sense? Sure. Yeah, like Let's... 213, call us. Right. Oh, right, right, right. If it works. If it works. If it works. I'm just saying, okay. figure out what our number is. You All right. Know? That sounds I like... don't have the time to do that. And yeah. I ain't got nobody to have that. All right. Let's go with have the first fun. voicemail. You got one first, Ryan? Yeah, I do. All right. Here we go. Show me the meaning. Voicemail number one. Haven't heard it yet. Let's go. Hey, Wisecracks. Chris here. Um, big fan of the show. So my mind was just blown when I was listening to Fight Club and the guy called in about Common not being dead. It's actually a very real possibility, but not for the reasons he said. It's because if you think about the Bowery King, Lawrence Fishburne's character, 
had told John that, you know, years ago, the last time they met, he gave him the option of either keep the hand on your neck to put pressure on the wounds or chase me and die. So maybe that was kind of a little bit of foreshadowing to what he did to the Commons character. And also, I'm asking you guys, because it was kind of a blink and you miss it, did Winston give John Wick a marker at the end of that? Like, isn't a marker what the hell got him in this whole mess in the first place? Oh. I don't understand the reasoning behind that. If you guys could clarify, that'd be awesome. Keep it up, and you guys are doing great. Bye. Thanks, dude. As far as the Common thing, I would love for Common to come back in the third one. I mean, really, it's an action movie that doesn't really need a lot of literal justification to bring someone back from the dead like that. I'd put money on it. You put money that Common's going to come back? I will. I mean, do you, what is it, on IMDb or something? I haven't looked. No, I have no clue. I'm just saying, we talked about it last time. I think that that they deliberately left that ambiguous, and they're going to have a big, oh, shit, Pepsi twist, as Garrick's would say. And as far as the question with the marker, I'm going to have to rewatch the scene, because I'm not entirely sure what he's talking about, but maybe. Do you guys remember? I have a question. Uh, I don't remember at all about the marker. Okay, but what were you going to say? Well... Is Common like a big enough figure that it would be a big deal to bring him back? You mean in the movie? You mean I just mean as a, as a like as a celebrity? Like, like yeah, like like I don't know. Like Lawrence Fishburne seems to have like in music, yes, but in film, is he a big enough of a figure that people would make a big deal to make an he, effort? To he's bring a big him part of the John the Wickerverse. Well, sort of. I mean, to me, it's just like, oh, Common, cool, singer. Whoa, Common can kick ass? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think that's but, I mean, besides... he's been a great actor for years. Uh, right. Has I... he been? What's he good in? Well. John Wick 2? You know. Mm. Yeah, he's great. No, no, when he pops up and shit all the time, I'm always like, yeah, he's fucking solid. Yeah. He's always good. All right, what's the next one? But that's, what, but, see, that's, but that's exactly what I mean. Like, if he doesn't show up, is it really that big of a deal? I'm just saying, like, in the know, context I, of the movie, I think that the story would be like, he'd be like, oh, oh shit. Moment, I would buy it. a big guy from the I would second buy movie. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, here we go. Next one. Next one. Hello, Wisecrack. Uh, I'm calling to ask you a question about Sorry to Bother You. So, in Sorry to Bother You, throughout the movie, Cassius Green kind of have this deal going on where... He tends to screw over his friends pretty regularly, and he's very manipulative about it. At the end of the movie, we like to kind of believe that he's gone against the system, he's thrown away all of his corporate friends, and he's now kind of accepted that this is all toxic in his life, and he's seeing what it's doing to the world around him. But I'm questioning whether or not this actually happened, because when he's talking to the big CEO of... um, his company. He basically proposes him the idea of becoming the horse people's Martin Luther King Jr., how he's going to liberate them and basically kick off all these events. By the end of the movie, he does become a horse, and he does actually, as we see with them being freed by the horses and the conversations they have, become this liberator of the horses. And upon kicking the guy's ass, this corporate individual, has he not actually fulfilled this role and are we not 100% certain he's just filling out the exact role and exact script that they've been planning together since the very beginning of the conversation? That everything beyond this is actually just something that he wants us to see? I don't know. It just got me thinking. Hope you have something to say about that. Yeah, thanks, dude. Interesting. Well, 
I like that. I hadn't. I, like I certainly hadn't thought about it. <laughs> the one thing I would say is that I'm pretty sure that the whole idea of being the horse Martin Luther King Jr. He was supposed to just rally or just like rile people up and make like just empty gestures towards progress. But obviously, I don't think it would be part of the plan to kill the CEO or yeah, to kill the CEO of Worry Free. The whole point is to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that especially if you know Boots Riley and here again, maybe this is like just because if you know a little bit more about who he is as a person, just like we're talking about with Paul Verhoeven here, then it kind of like adds some some clarity to it. I think we we could see this also as a sort of criticism of the way that Martin Luther King has been co-opted by white power structures. Right. And um, that Martin Luther King is oftentimes viewed as a very benign figure that is like, oh, it's just about like linking arms and, you know, it doesn't matter if you're uh, where you are in your political spectrum. Everybody can, you know, link arms about Martin Luther King, not recognizing, you know, that uh, that he was on the FBI's watch list. And later in his life, he had a sort of like socialist turn and became very uh, anti-capitalist and kind of was was really interested in the mechanisms of power within political economy. And um, and so I think that in a way you kind of see that as on offer where he's like, where Army Hammer's like, dude, you could be like the Martin Luther King of your people, man, of the horse of the horse people. What are they called? The Equus what Equisapiens? Yeah, the Equisapiens. <laughs> the Equisapiens. That's right, the Equisapiens. Um, but then what happens, I think, what I do like what the caller said, I don't remember his name, but what I do like what the caller said is that there's almost like an inevitability here. That's like you as a black man in America are inevitably going to be t- turned into a workhorse anyway. And so uh, the difference is, is rather than being a Martin Luther King Jr. figure at the end that's easily co-optable within the white power structure, is he becomes a revolutionary figure, like a, Hu- a Huey P. Newton kind of figure who was you know, one of the founders of um, the Black Panther Party in the United States. So, and he becomes much more that kind of figure, like a radical anti-establishment kind of figure. And so that's what he does at the end by breaking down the door and fucking shit up is he's actually then causing a sort of like violent revolutionary outbreak, which is not necessarily non, uh, not within the tradition of Martin Luther King Jr., but it's in a very sort of specific um, anti-co-optable within the institutional hierarchy version of that lineage, but much more like Huey P. Newton, I, I would say, rather than like a Martin Luther King figure. All right, so this one is from, no joke, Commissioner Gordon. Oh, his my name, God. His name is Kevin Gordon. Commissioner Kevin Gordon. <laughs> anyway, uh, he wants to talk about Fight Club. We got some great emails about Fight Club. I think that uh, people enjoyed that episode. Uh, he says, My personal take is that Tyler Durden is the antithesis to the thesis of modern consumerism and emasculation that the narrator lives at the beginning of the movie. I think that Tyler was right to point out the meaninglessness and lack of fulfillment that the narrator felt while living in this society. And I think that the narrator needed to learn something from Tyler as there is a lot of truth within his message. However, as we reach the climax of the story, the narrator begins to see the flaws in Tyler's extreme views. Rather than accept these views at face value, he begins to form his own perspective and reaches a new synthesis within himself. The narrator begins to take responsibility for his own existence and no longer fears his own death. Some highlights of his actions toward the film that demonstrate this are him standing in front of a bus, defusing a bomb, pulling the trigger to kill Tyler, and taking Marla by the hand in the closing moments. Interestingly, the narrator becomes a man who is more authentically masculine in the end. I think that whether they know it or not, these truths within Tyler's extreme message that the narrator takes upon himself are what most men identify with in watching this movie. Perhaps they do not see the many flaws in Tyler's views, but I think that those who do can learn the most from this movie keep up the good work from commissioner gordon 
Amen. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think all those examples that he brought up are really great. And I entirely think I agree. And more to I think that's ultimately what I was trying to say last week is that the truths or the Tyler Durden's extreme message are probably what most men identify with. And I'm not bringing in what Austin told me about the yoga. I'm not directly that. I don't think that we should blame the movie for that necessarily. But um, but yeah, I think it's a super interesting email. Thank you, Commissioner Gordon. Yeah, I mean, because Tyler Durden is the id, right? That And he clearly says that. He's like, I look like you want to look. I fuck like you want to fuck. Like all this other stuff is like I am – I am the impulse that is within you that you wish you could manifest in your life. And in Freudian terms, it's the difference between the id, the ego, and the superego. The superego is the societal norms that are imposed upon you. The ego is the sort of identity that you live. And then your id is like this this unconscious, unbounded I, – I, I hesitate to use the word animality, but it's this freedom that is like sort of like bursting forth. But there is a sort of bruteness about it, like an untamedness about it. And the idea of like reconciling in psychoanalytic terms with all of these conflicting forces is somehow coming to a synthesis at the end. You know, it, it is. It's like you can learn from those impulses without necessarily going to the extreme dark places that the impulses might tempt you to go, right? Because you still have the superego that you ought to live within because, fuck, man, we live in a society and we should also take care of people and not just simply follow our selfish impulses. And I got one last email from Shane. Shane sends us a really long, very thoughtful email about Fight Club. I'm going to have to shorten it, but I'm going to try and uh, maintain all the goods. Here we go. So he's talking about the penguin that we talked about. He says, I think the penguin as a flightless bird is a metaphor for the emasculated man. This explains the meaning of the dream and in turn helps understand the ending of the movie. What What does a penguin do once evolution takes away its flight? Start a fight club. Where penguins flap their wings uselessly trying to recapture some atavistic impulse? No, they still need to move forward and they can't fly, so they've adapted to simply sliding on their bellies. It's a metaphor for finding an elegant way to adapt to inescapable changes. I think the movie is perhaps saying that emasculation is an imaginary problem that only exists if you insist traditional masculinity if you insist that traditional masculinity is worth clinging to, and I also think that this is the reason why the penguin later becomes Marla. I'll, I'll explain. As you said, commercialization is dehumanizing, but so is militarism. There must be some happy middle ground. The problem the movie appears to be addressing is that men seem to insist that masculinity is an essential thing that must be preserved, so they pull back against commercialization hard and overcorrect in the direct in the direction of militarism to reclaim their masculinity. If masculinity leads to just overcorrection, then perhaps it is masculinity and commercialization that need to be adjusted. This elegant solution of accepting emasculation as not necessarily a bad thing while still fighting dehumanization would be the human male version of the penguin realizing it can no longer fly and simply sliding, which seems to fix the problem quite well. Consider how Norton says he's jealous of Marla because she's everything he wants to be. Well, the only difference between Norton and Marla is that she can have all the same disdain for the trappings of modern culture, but because she's a woman, she doesn't have some corresponding terror and existential dread having to do with losing some supposedly precious masculinity. This is why Marla becomes the penguin in Norton's dream and also tells him to slide. At the end of the movie, Norton embraces Marla, finally ready to accept that he doesn't need to fight and he doesn't need Ikea furniture. He just needs her. But in a very deep way, it implicates how all men need to embrace the more feminine to move forward in the modern 
in the modern world. The bombs go off representing that we might realize the solution only after it's too late from Shane. So, wow, I never thought about that. So Edward Norton's character is based on the biological evolution of penguins. Maybe. It's just another way to read this very dense, very awesome movie. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. I, I had heard the thing about penguins being flightless birds, but I had not heard it taken to that place, which I think is really smart and really mm. interesting. Yeah. That was Super cool. provocative. Really cool. We have some smart fucking listeners, man. We do, man. I agree. Fucking A. I, we have some smart live, live chatters, too. Can I have a oh, few? Oh, yeah, messages? please. Austin for the win, as always. Alejandro Diosa. Good job, uh, Austin, whoop, whoop. for the win. Um, Alejandro, you're, my, you're my, my, my homie. We had a ton of people ch telling us to check out this video by this guy named Sargon about Starship Troopers. Did either oh, of y'all see that? <laughs> no, I didn't. I've never seen it, but a million people were like, have you seen Star Sargon's video? So I'm going to check that out because all y'all said that. Also, we had a million people wanting, uh, begging us to, or, uh, to, to tell everyone that Paul Verhoeven did not read the book to this movie. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, I guess probably deliberately before he made this thing. So everyone, we have varying interpretations on whether that means that he did it any justice. I like that. I like when the filmmaker mm. doesn't do read you? the book. I do. I remember... Yeah, because I feel it's like a different it's kind thing. of weird. I feel like I'm he's making, making a... he's making a movie that's based off something, but he it's not his job to do justice to the book. His job is to make a movie uh, based off the screenplay that was based off the book. Yeah, yeah, because there's another screenplay too that this was based off of. Something about like Outpost Nine or something like that. Has so anyone seen Starship like... Troopers Two? Yes, and I have friends that worked on it actually, um, and uh, it it's not good. Um, okay. They basically. <laughs> You know, actually, it's very interesting, okay, because, you know, uh, this movie and Jarhead have similar sequel problems where, you know, you know how we're talking about how people could mistake the movie, right? Well, the, 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 it, well, basically, they take all of the satirical elements or anything that you could take as satirical, throw it all out, just have the action bug shit, and basically, it's just like a fuck yeah, you know, military movie. It's the version of the movie you would think. You know the morons would are, are have in their head of what uh, or their interpretation of Starship Troopers is. So like, um, it's funny you bring up Jarhead because it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's very similar. Jarhead too has the same thing where it's just like all of the you know anti-war stuff is just gone. It's just like a, a military propaganda movie. Um, anyway, so yeah, Starship Troopers too. Don't really recommend it. Has cool bug stuff. Shout out to my friend Aaron that worked on it. Okay. Um, uh, this guy, uh, uh, Reginald said, the point of the film is that none of what is prevented is fulfilling. There's no glory in war. War keeps going and the so soldiers don't matter. They are meat for the grinder. I, I mean, I can see that the element kind of, but it's interesting that, you know, none of the people take that, you know, they but we think see that they, real they growth yeah, with Johnny end, Rico. Yeah. At the end, they're still just as Melrose place, the unhappy as oh, possible. Yeah. I mean, I like that reading. And I think that that's what it should say. And I think it does say that because because they're so callous to the fact that war is so like atrocious, that kind of like creates that weird tension, that weird conflict. Right. There's like a, a bifurcation between these two ideas. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, but I think what the film actually does on the surface is it totally glosses over that. And it's like, no, nah, don't worry, man, you guys can all be cool and you can still be homies with your high school friends, even through all this nonsense. Yeah. You know, my favorite scene in the whole movie <laughs> isn't even the bug stuff. It's literally the scene towards the beginning of the movie. The where shower. No, it's where they're all about to. That's second. But uh, uh, <laughs> it's when they're about to go off the war and they're all like, you know what? Let's put our hands and they have the friendship pact. They're like, you know what? 
Let's yeah. just make a pact that through all this, no matter what, let's still be friends for forever. And then at the end, they're friends for forever. You know that they're still uh, uh, yeah. uh, the survivors are. And so that I, like that's kind of a beautiful thing, even though it's all wrapped up in this fascist fucking fairy tale. Um, another good friendship pack scene is like in Stand by Me. I love that scene. You know, mm. friendship pack move, uh, uh, scenes are, should be in more movies. They're they're good. Mm-hmm. Okay, you um, know yeah. Austin, how I. When I watched this, I was like, how is it that Zizek didn't talk about this in the Pervert's Guide to Ideology? How? I mean, maybe it's just too on the nose. Maybe. I don't know. You know whose favorite movie this is? Mm-mm. Uh, uh, Takashi Miike. Really? His all-time favorite movie. Oh, man. Takashi really? Miike, one of the all-time geniuses. Yeah. You, can't you see it, you know, after seeing this movie? Uh, just how... I mean, dude, his aesthetic is all over the place, man. It's <laughs> like saying, I mean... He literally has made like 17 genre of movies and nailed all of them. And invented a couple, about five. <laughs> and invented about five, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, one, one trivia fact before we go um, uh, is that, did you know that um, during the, the filming of the naked shower scene that Paul Verhoeven directed it naked? I did not know that. Interesting. I love it. That's, uh, that's Pretty cool, quality huh? directing right yeah, there. Yeah, dude, meta direct, or, or method absolutely directing. Absolutely it is. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Got to make the actors feel comfortable. If, if they're going to do it, you would do. I actually have heard directors say that. Like, I would never ask my actors to do anything that I myself wouldn't do. So I love that. Fucking do it, man. Yeah, I think it's cool. Cool. All right. We're signing off here. Thank you, guys. Thank you, patrons, for uh, voting this movie up. It was really an awesome experience. Specifically for voting for my movie that I wanted to watch and review. I appreciate it, patrons. Love you, dudes. Yeah. And do that. If you guys want your voices heard as well, go to wisecrackplus.com. You can join us there. Join the Discord. Join the chat. Well, you can find me on the internet on Wisecrack, the Wisecrack videos, at Wisecrack on Twitter, at Father of Woody on Instagram, if you'd like to see pictures of my dog. I do. Ryan, where can we find you? You can find me on Ryan Shorts. That's shorts like you wear them, and like short films, and I'm releasing a bunch of parody <laughs> uh, song videos soon. So check them out, man. Love you. And... And you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Uh, I also do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. And please pray for me that I did not lose my computer and all of my research. The man's please writing. Love. The send man's writing a book. Do your do your rain dances, whatever I, you believe in or don't believe in. I'm sorry, Austin. I hope it, <laughs> am I to understand you're gonna have to start <laughs> writing a book from scratch again if this doesn't happen? Yeah, I. I, Wait, oh, I, I mean. I get, Whatever, I dude. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. You know what? It's just another it's draft, and it's going to make it that much better. <laughs> I appreciate the positivity. Yeah. All right, guys. <laughs> signing off. Lead us out, Ryan. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. You want to live forever? Peace. Laters.